Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Manish Rath. I am Manish Rath here at Keller and Heckman, and we've got a great topic today. The uh, the agency, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, just issued a frequently asked questions regarding silica, the silica standard in the construction industry. For those of you who are attending the OSHA 3030 for the first time, this is a program that we do about every 30 days, and we try and cover a topic of developmental law in the field of occupational safety and health law, or OSHA law, uh, and we try and cover that new topic in, in about 30 minutes. Uh, I'm joined today by my colleague here at Keller and Heckman in our OSHA law practice, Javane Nakumaram. Javane, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Manish. Happy to be here. So, Javanese, as you know, we have a great topic. I think that the silica standard is maybe one of the, the largest or most far-reaching uh, standards that OSHA has put out in quite some time, and the industries which are impacted by the standard are, are quite numerous. Perhaps uh, certain critical elements of manufacturing and, of course, the construction sector are very heavily impacted by the standard. And the, the standard is divided into a general industry standard as well as a construction standard. And I think this is important uh, to talk about because it's the construction section uh, that that we're talking about today, where OSHA should frequently ask questions or guidance. Uh, so for those of you who have uh, already logged in but haven't yet dialed in, I'll put the web, the phone number to, to get the audio portion up on the slides. As I said, my name is Manish Rath. I'm joined by Javne Nakumaram. Uh, we've been doing this for now six years, and all of the past episodes are libraried on our website uh, at khlaw.com slash OSHA3030. And so you can find a number of topics. This episode, actually being the September uh, episode of the OSHA 3030, begins our seventh year. So now we are starting year seven of the OSHA 3030. I'm quite proud of that accomplishment. I think that's fantastic that that has had that staying power. And I will say that the reason it has uh, been able to succeed for so long is that uh, you've, you've responded to our request that, that although we put this program on complimentary to clients of Keller and Heckman and friends of the firm, uh, but that word of mouth is critical to bring in new members of the OSHA 3030 community. So when you get an email inviting you to register for the next episode, please forward it on to three people within your organization and at other organizations who are in-house counsel or safety and health professionals responsible for safety and health uh, for employers. The act of forwarding the invitation on to three more people inside and outside of your organization is absolutely critical for the future of the OSHA 3030, and it has been critical to why we've uh, been able to put this program on for so long so far, a full six years. So with that said, Javane, let's talk about what we should talk about today. Uh, I think, first of all, just to make sure everyone's caught up, we should we should talk about the requirements of the silica standard in the construction sector, and then talk about some of the open-ended questions that that, that raised for, for construction employers. Uh, and then we ought to talk about the, the frequently asked questions that just got published by the agency. Uh, I, I know there are a great many of them, a great many questions in the document, and we'll, we'll select a few and talk about those and the impact that those frequently asked questions have on compliance. And then finally, as we always do, we should end with a practical 
discussion of takeaway items that members of the OSHA 3030 community can use to uh, implement uh, a better compliance program at their organizations. So with that said, Jovene, let's get started. Great. So OSHA published two silica standards on March 25th, 2016. Uh, the first one applied to the general industry and maritime um, and the maritime sectors. And then uh, the second standard was specifically for the construction industry, which is what we're going to be focusing on today. Overall, the standard establishes a permissible a permissible exposure limit of 50 micrograms per cubic meter over an eight-hour time-weighted average and an action level of 25 micrograms per cubic, cubic meter. So OSHA determined that occupational exposure to respirable crystalline silica at the previous PEL posed a significant risk of developing silicosis and other non-malignant respiratory diseases, lung cancer, and kidney disease. And so they promulgated the standards, and the construction industry standard contains many of the same elements as you would find in typical OSHA standards, including requirements for an exposure assessment unless you use uh, the exposure control methods established in Table 1. Uh, respiratory protection, housekeeping, written exposure control plan, medical surveillance, hazard communication, and record keeping. I should point out, Javne, that that an exposure assessment is typical for health standards, but but they introduced a feature here which was sort of a somewhat unique to the silica standard, and that was this concept of Table One, where if your activities or the equipment you were using were listed or identified in Table One that employers could eliminate the need for ongoing exposure uh, assessment and and could strictly rely on the remediation uh, that was prescribed in Table 1 as, as uh, sufficient. And so that was a shortcut against ongoing exposure assessment. So that, that was a unique feature that I thought uh, was atypical of, of health standards. All of the other features that you described are mm-hmm. pretty much, as you say, Uh, classic features of health standards. Right, I agree. And Table 1 identifies 18 different common construction tasks that OSHA believes generate high exposures to respirable crystalline silica. So like Manish said, uh, for if employers comply, or if you have an activity that falls under Table 1 and you comply with the requirements of Table 1, which include engineering and work practice control methods and respiratory protection, um, then that is how you can comply with the standard. You do not have to do a separate uh, individual exposure assessment of your employees to determine their level if their level of exposure uh, is above the thresholds. So with that said, uh, as you say, the, the standard was published uh, a couple of years ago, and the compliance date was set at, uh, essentially it was moved to September 23rd of 2017. And that was for all of the elements of the standard except for uh, how sample analyses are conducted. And even that element was implemented as uh, effective by June of this, June 23rd of this past year. So now the standard is fully in effect and employers in the construction sector need to be completely in compliance. There was an interim period where OSHA for the first 30 days, and this is typical, I think, OSHA for the first 30 days uh, was stating that it would engage in in uh, cons- uh, advice and consent, uh, advice and uh, compliance assistance rather than enforcement. But now they are clearly in enforcement mode. In fact, I think a case that's getting a lot of attention for those who pay uh, close attention to occupational safety and health law 
there was a state in a state uh, plan state, my home state of licensure, Virginia, the Virginia Occupational Safety and Health Administration uh, issued an enforcement action against a construction firm in southwestern Virginia, Roanoke, uh, in the Roanoke area. And, and that was quite significant. There, uh, there were at least $300,000 in proposed penalties and a number of citation items, uh, many of them centering around alleged violations of the silica standard in construction. So, so we are clearly in enforcement mode now. That's right. So it's very important that companies are aware of their obligations under the, the silica standard and that they review the available guidance that OSHA is putting out. So following the issuance of the silica standard, there were several concerns from from lots of different industries, but in particular the construction industry. They voiced concerns about not having enough time to comply with the standard because uh, the general industry standard had about two years to comply, whereas the construction industry had half the amount of time. Um, and there was significant confusion over uh, table one. Uh, there were companies who weren't sure if, uh, if certain activities actually fell under table one or outside table one, or even if certain activities were within the scope of the standard. Um, and there were also some difficulties in how to comply with certain exposure control methods that are listed on table one, and just some general interpretive ambiguities in the regulation. So I think because of that, they decided to issue these frequently asked questions to hopefully address some of those problems. Uh, and I think it's safe to say that that uh, there was a, a lot of back and forth between industry and the agency to develop these frequently asked questions. You and I participated mm, quite right. extensively in that process. Right, and unions were involved as well. And so this was a collaborative effort, and OSHA just about a month ago released 53 FAQs that cover all parts of the construction standard other than respiratory protection. So they it, it almost covers everything. And uh, again, they... The helpful thing here is that the FAQs are specific for the construction industry and providing guidance to employers and employees about the standards requirements and addresses some of the issues that companies express following the rulemaking. So with that said, why don't we talk about some of the frequently asked questions that were published by OSHA to give uh, members of the OSHA 3030 community a sense of what what's uh, listed there. I think the first one is interesting. Uh, I think the the fr- the first few frequently asked questions go to the scope of of the applicability of the silica standard in construction. Right. They So remember, the construction industry standard applies to all occupational exposures of silica and construction work, except where employee exposure will remain below the action level under foreseeable conditions. So knowing if an activity creates an exposure above or below the action level is a really important question. And this FAQ gets to that question. So the question is, has OSHA identified specific tasks that are likely to be outside of the scope of the standard because they generate exposures below the action level under foreseeable conditions? And uh, OSHA explains that, yes, there are some activities that they identify uh, would be outside the scope for this reason, including mixing small amounts of mortar, concrete, mixing bagged silica-free drywall compound, mixing bagged exterior insulation, finishing system base and finish code, and removing concrete uh, formwork. OSHA also noted that certain tasks where employees are working with silica-containing products 
that are handled while wet would fall under this because again the the wet component would reduce uh, reduce dust exposure. So I think the takeaway message from this, because it's fairly straightforward, many of these are related to silica-free materials, is that I think, as common sense would suggest, when you're dealing with either minute quantities or non-silica materials, of course, that puts the standard, uh, it renders the standard inapplicable and puts the activity outside the scope of the standard. Question number two, I think, is is at least as interesting, though, and I think it's more far more interesting. Right. So this is another scoping-type question. So... In construction, there are a lot of different construction tasks that are what people consider to be short term, so less than 15 minutes long, like hand drilling. Uh, So the next FAQ asks, does the standard cover employees who perform silica generating tasks for only 15 minutes or less a day? And so the standard uh, itself doesn't include a specific exemption for tasks uh, for only short term exposures. But OSHA explains that in many cases, employees who perform construction tasks for very short periods of time in isolation of activities that generate significant silica exposure uh, will be exposed below the action level under foreseeable conditions. So they identify carpenters, plumbers, electricians as the type of workers who may perform tasks like uh, drilling with a handheld drill that would involve occasional brief exposures uh, that are incidental to their primary work. So these are the types of activities that or short-term, that would not be in the scope of the standard. However, OSHA also notes to be careful about activities that might actually generate very high amounts of uh, silica during short-term exposures like abrasive blasting. So another question, actually the third question that they they published in their their frequently asked questions, uh, they ask if an employee is not covered by the standard because exposures remain below the action level under any foreseeable condition, in that circumstance, would an employer need to document their determination that the employee isn't covered because of that reason, that, that there's no foreseeable condition where they would exceed the action level? And OSHA said, no, there's no requirement that uh, an employer document their determination, uh, but the employer may do so on their own, and they may have other reasons for recording their uh, exposure determination, essentially. And I would point out that it's very difficult to prove the reasons why you don't have a exposure control uh, in place if you haven't documented what the reasons were. And I think that at the moment that you make that determination is the time, the best time to to create a record saying, yeah, we looked at all of these following features and we therefore came to the conclusion that that this is an ex- uh, reasonably foreseeable exposure uh, levels would be below the action level. Uh, and I, I think that's really just important for record keeping bec- and because people at a particular establishment may change over time and uh, assumptions as to why it's not in place may not be as accurate as the record uh, that was contemporaneously created. But I will note that OSHA added in its uh, frequently asked question that if an employer does choose to document its deter- determination for its own reasons, then just remember that that the employer has a duty to maintain those exposure records over time. And I think that's, that is an important point. So that, that may apply to your exposure monitoring. It may not necessarily apply to exposure determinations, uh, determinations about reasonably foreseeable conditions. Uh, but but if you do have exposure records themselves, they, they need now to be maintained 
even if they weren't required uh, under the standard. So, so keep that in mind as you go. But generally speaking, given that memories fade, people change within job descriptions, I personally would advise that as long as you're making a determination, you might as well memorialize it, uh, even if briefly. Right. And so but most of those FAQs address just the general question of does my do my activities fall within the scope of the standard? Now, looking to table one, there are a lot of FAQs that addressed how to interpret table one and what activities fall under table one. So this FAQ talks about um, how there are many entries on table one requiring employers to operate and uh, maintain tools in accordance with the manufacturer's instructions to minimize dust emissions. So the question is, if an employer is following table one and employees are performing a task on table one, does the silica standard require the employer to follow every element of the tool manufacturer's instructions? And OSHA helpfully clarifies that no, the silica standard only requires employers to follow manufacturer instructions that are related to dust control in this context. So, so OSHA uh, in the FAQs provides guidance on how to figure out if a, if an employer if a manufacturer's instructions uh, is quote related to dust control. So generally, an employer needs to consider whether the failure to follow the particular instruction would increase the employee's exposure to silica. And so there are a couple of examples that uh, OSHA gives of manufacturer instructions that minimize dust emissions, such as instructions on the use of water, water supply and flow rates, uh, instructions on when to change water or when the water supply is reused, instructions on the use or installation or maintenance of dust collectors or vacuums, and uh, instructions on the maintenance and replacement uh, or the rotation of blades. And so things that uh, wouldn't fall under uh, an instruction that minimizes dust emissions would be things like instructions on fueling, uh, warnings related to electrical hazards, uh, instructions for PPE, etc. So uh, it's important to look at what the what the actual instruction is intended to do. And OSHA notes that if an instruction has multiple purposes, so some of its purposes are for dust control and some are not, um, then the standard requires that the employer follow the instruction regardless of whether it serves more than one purpose. So in a similar vein, Javane, uh, I thought frequently asked question number 11 was interesting because there OSHA clarifies whether or not if an employer is using a dust collection system as prescribed under Table 1, would they need to follow the minimum airflow recommended by the manufacturer? And uh, alternatively, is OSHA expecting employers to conduct their own testing for airflow? And OSHA clarified, look, no, we don't require that you conduct your own testing. The employer may rely on statements that are made by the manufacturer of the uh, dust collection equipment. And what I take from uh, frequently asked question number nine and 11 collectively is that they're saying, we, we don't think that this relates to uh, all of the instructions that you see in manufacturer uh, statements, but you don't have to do your own testing. You can rely on the instructions and the advertisements or claims made by the manufacturer. And you have to clearly use some common sense as to which portions of the instructions or the user's manual are relevant to the question of silica exposure. And so, so here I thought this one worked in tangent 
uh, in in uh, in tandem. Sorry, with uh, frequently asked question number nine, to to suggest an overarching theme that that the the written material provided with equipment needs to be applied and can be relied on, but only with regards to the portion that's relevant to uh, exposure to silica dust. Frequently asked question 14. I thought this was interesting too. Chavane, this one, OSHA says, for a few tasks on table one, the respirator requirements vary based on the duration of the task. Uh, for example, whether or not the duration is less than or equal to four hours mm-hmm. per shift or greater than four hours per shift. Uh, so is OSHA expecting that employers keep uh, faithful track of the exact amount of time that the employer, employee is exposed? And OSHA responds with the interpretation, no, an employer has to use good faith in making a judgment about how long they expect the task should take based on experience uh, or uh, their general knowledge of the task based on their, their industry experience. And if it turns out, I would suggest that afterwards it took longer than four hours, but the original estimate based on good faith judgment was that it wouldn't take four hours. And that continues to come up, that it continually takes more than four hours. Then I think that the employer is going to have a very tough time defending themselves, even under this frequently asked question. Uh, so I, I think that the good faith judgment standard that OSHA is announcing here in this frequently asked question has limited value and has to be mm-hmm. uh, rechecked based on ongoing experience going forward. Uh, otherwise, I, I don't think it gives an employer very much latitude if the experience is contrary to the judgment of the employer. Uh, but So I think that was interesting to, to point out is that OSHA does seem to be taking the step of uh, providing a little bit of latitude for an employer. I wouldn't say it's terribly much if the good faith judgment is grossly inaccurate. Right, so for FAQ 15, uh, there are many parts of Table 1 that require employers to to use a tool in accordance with the manufacturer's instructions to minimize dust emissions or operate a machine to minimize dust emissions. That's in That's in many of the Table 1 tasks. So the question here is, uh, if an employer following table, is a employer following table one required to minimize dust emissions? And what does that mean? So OSHA, in this case, uh, it helpfully clarifies that the standard doesn't have a separate requirement for an employer to minimize dust emissions. Uh, An employer generating a limited amount of dust when engaging in a table one task would not be in violation of the standard if it uh, fully and properly implements the engineering controls, work practices, and respiratory uh, protection requirements in the table. And so there isn't a separate requirement uh, other than to comply with the table one provisions. However, OSHA also says that Um, A noticeable increase in dust emissions may indicate that the dust control system isn't operating properly. So the employer needs to make sure that when it's implementing um, the engineering and work practice controls on table one, that they are implementing them properly. And so this would be an example, you know, when when there's a, a huge increase in dust emissions, Uh, that the employer uh, would need to check and make sure that they are implementing this in a way that is compliant with Table 1. A pair of frequently asked questions, 17 and 18, caught my interest because one asks whether or not handheld powered demolition hammers with brushing tools are covered by Table 1. And OSHA said, we consider that to be a type of handheld 
powered chipping tool. And the next one asked whether tile saws are covered by table one. And OSHA answered, we consider that to be a type of handheld power saw. And I think that's interesting because table one is a prescribed list of equipment, contrary to what you see on bullet number three. But it does suggest that there are synonyms for pieces of equipment such that even if you don't find your piece of equipment on table one, as phrased by table one, there may be a possibility that you're still dealing with a piece of equipment that has a different name or goes by a different name. And so it's a prescribed list of equipment. You're not allowed to extrapolate from that list and say, well, this is a piece of equipment that's sort of like all the others on table one or one of the others on table one. I don't think that there's any leeway for that kind of interpretive exercise. I do, however, think that it's not a prescribed list to the extent that the words have to match up exactly. If uh, hand, if some people call a specific type of equipment a handheld power saw and others consider handheld towel saws to be the right phrasing, the, if, to the extent that they mean the same thing, they could both be covered under table one. And I think that's the thing you got to watch out for is when the, it's merely a change in phrasing and when it's a totally different piece of equipment not currently contemplated under table one. And there are opportunities in the uh, table one uh, concept to find pieces of equipment that, uh, that you might consider to be uh, close enough in, in phrasing or terminology and maybe slight variations in functionality that you could make an argument. But I think you've got to make the analysis as to whether or not the, the dissimilarity is so minute or insignificant that they do, in fact, qualify for consideration under Table 1. And I think that the most uh, prevailing interpretation here is not only frequently asked questions 17 or 18, but another document that OSHA published uh, a little less than a year ago, which is the Small Business Guide. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, that, that, right. that's got some helpful language on, on what uh, types of equipment are substantially identical uh, for the purposes of qualifying under Table 1. So, so keep that in mind as you look at your equipment and try and match them up against that table. Right. So the last FAQ that we're going to cover uh, involves the written exposure control plan requirements. So there are there are questions about what should be included in a written exposure control plan and how it should be properly evaluated. So this question uh, specifically says, what are the standards requirements for reviewing and evaluating the effectiveness of an employer's uh, written exposure control plan? So again, the standard doesn't uh, set out the factors in how to make this determination. It just says that employers need to review and evaluate the effectiveness of their plan annually, uh, at least annually, and to update it if necessary. So this FAQ, uh, in this FAQ, OSHA says that uh, there are a number of steps that should be taken that it considers to be sufficient to fulfill this obligation. And the first is to do an assessment of the written uh, exposure control plan to determine if it continues to accurately describe all the current conditions and and scenarios in the work site. And also, the employer should uh, discuss with uh, the competent person regarding the effectiveness of the written exposure control plan and discuss this with employees. And so have a discussion with a sample of employees regarding the effectiveness of the plan and the employees involved should represent a range of different exposures in order to give the employer 
uh, a way to adequately review and evaluate the plan's effectiveness. So let's wrap up where we always wrap up uh, with the comforting consistency that we've applied for now, easily 73 episodes, and that is the practical takeaway items that we would uh, leave you with at the OSHA 3030 community uh, with what employers should do. I think the first thing is to compare the activities and the types of equipment that you're using uh, at an establishment with the equipment and activities described in Table 1 to see if you have Table 1 activities. I think the other thing that employers need to keep in mind is that, that these frequently asked questions are interpretive. They interpret the standard, and they're not the standard itself. Nevertheless, courts certainly do give deference to interpretations of this type. Uh, but I merely mean to point out that it's interpretive and not the standard itself, and that there are other interpretations as well out there. And as I mentioned, the Small Business Guide is one of them, uh, and there are other enforcement action memoranda, uh, enforcement memoranda that are out there as well. And they need to all be read in concert to understand how the agency is interpreting the standard. Uh, finally, I'd say that OSHA has not quit itself of uh, visiting this standard and trying to further clarify it. So employers have to keep an eye out individually as individual organizations and through their trade associations for any additional interpretive uh, statements, including upcoming requests for information that uh, seek input for how to further revise Table 1 and then for employers and their associations to comment on any proposed comments by the agency. With that said, I will uh, leave you with one request that I don't know if I've ever made before. When you get an invitation to the OSHA 3030, <laughs> please forward it on to three others so that we can keep the OSHA 3030 going for even another seven years. That is a critical favor that we ask of you in exchange for seven years of having provided this program every single month in less than 30 minutes or about 30 minutes free of charge. So please, please take that request to heart. You can, in between OSHA 3030 episodes, follow more OSHA updates either through Twitter at Rathmonish uh, on our LinkedIn pages for Monish Rath, David Cervati, Larry Halperin, Javane Nakumram, John Gustafson, or others on our OSHA team or our Keller and Heckman Workplace Safety and Health uh, LinkedIn page. And we reprise this episode and all of our episodes for the past few years as a podcast. So please subscribe to this program as a podcast so that you can listen to it on the road if you miss it as a, pod, as a webinar uh, or at your desk or anywhere away from your desk. Uh, and, and that podcast comes automatically if you subscribe. Most importantly, please, when you've listened to a podcast, remember to like or rate the podcast so that it gets more easily searched by others. That's what allows it to be found by others more easily. So liking and rating that podcast is a really critical favor to the OSHA 3030 community. Uh, finally, the next date for the OSHA 3030 is already scheduled October 24, 2018, always on a Wednesday, always at 1 p.m. And you can register either on our website, khlaw.com slash OSHA3030 or when you get an email. Our sister programs, we have now one more sister. Our family is growing. Uh, the, the Tosca 3030 will come up on Wednesday, October 10th. The FIFRA 3030 will come up on a date to be determined, also on a Wednesday at 1 p.m. And now we have a new program called the REACH 3030. For those of you whose uh, manufacturers are implicated by REACH, uh, that will come up at 1.35 p.m. 
uh, Eastern U.S. time on October 10. And and uh, and so please stay tuned for those or register on those websites. Uh, please forward these uh, in, uh, these announcements on for these programs as well to those in your organization that are responsible for those areas of law. And we thank you for once again participating in this OSHA 3030. And until next month, thank you on behalf of Javanay Nakumaram uh, and Karen Heckman and myself. And until next month, stay safe.